Hey, welcome to Four for Friday. I'm Michael Girdley, and this is Will Rupp. Well, that Hello, was everybody. Intro. That was our intro music. We killed it. Uh, if you're new to the podcast, uh, our format is pretty straightforward. We address four topics as questions and uh we do two that are considered appetizer questions and two that are considered main course in and out talk about them and then uh we're done in 25 30 minutes or less so it should be pretty exciting with our first question is me and my first question is should should men shave their head bald yes but you don't do you, you don't do it I don't do it. I, I'm assuming the context of this question is if you're already dealing with a receding hairline or a bald spot, should you shave your head bald? Is no, that what you're thinking? Or are you I just think, thinking in general, should everybody shave their head? I think in general, there is a lot about this hairstyle that is uh, both super access- acceptable and secondarily is uh, cheaper and, uh, and has become something where Oh, your computer noise is still going nuts again. You gotta stop sharing your computer sound. Anyway, so from every aspect except for the fact you get sunburned more, the the close shaven head is is superior as a haircut, in my opinion. Uh, the time that I shaved my head for swimming, I found it uncomfortable, uh, and I guess that maybe do you find that it goes away after you shave your head regularly? You stop thinking about it. So there is definitely a difference between shaving your head with a razor, you know, like you shave your beard Uh versus clippers. Like I think the clipper aspect where you do a couple of millimeters, three or four millimeters, like that is very easy and feels very comfortable. It just feels like you have very short hair. So you shave your head down to peach fuzz is your strategy. (laughs) Yeah, it's a peach fuzz haircut. (laughs) Okay. Well, go ahead. I was going to say the the things to steer away from is uh, you don't want the the monk look, right? The the bald on top, hair on the sides <laughs> look. Not not a great look. Uh, you don't want the comb over. That's pretty bad. Uh, we already talked about most important things learned from fathers, but I would say comb over. Don't do the comb over is something that I learned from my father because he did it for about 10 years when he was balding. And everyone was relieved when he stopped doing it and just cut the sides of his hair really short. Um, it looked it looked much more uh, groomed. Uh, and then what's the other bad? The other bad look is the the Wayne Grow look, the uh, heavily receding hairline in the front and long hair in the back. Oh. So you're, you're. I think that's I think that's not a good look. So it's a, a balding mullet. A balding mullet, yeah. The balding mullet, not a not a good way to go. So okay, so I think we've identified every haircut. If you have it, you should just get rid of it and give up. Yeah, if if you're working any one of those strategies, just go to a, a fully shaved head. So a funny thing about the fully shaved thing that I didn't expect is there are if you go talk to other people, other men that have gone the direction of of this peach fuzz or fully, fully picked kind of hair. They talk to you like you're in some sort of special fraternity. They're like, Oh, 
when did you make the switch and join? It's like the weirdest thing. I have an acquaintance slash friend and he'll be like, he saw me the first time I did it. And he's like, Gurdley, you came home. <laughs> like that was it. Like I joined the club, like I'd returned from war by getting rid of all my hair. It was like the, it was like the strangest thing. Uh, so. That, that is strange. It'll probably be a while before I join that club because for me, I don't have a big receding hairline. What I have is a small bald spot on the back and top of my head. Mm-hmm. So when I look in the mirror, it seems as if I have a full head of hair. I'd, I'm never aware of the bald spot. I only occasionally see it if I get if somebody takes a photograph of me from the side or behind or the top or something right. like that. So usually I'm not aware of it, and I think I have a perfectly good head of hair. Uh, you also save money besides saving money on haircuts. You also save money on shampoo. Huge benefit. All right, let's move on to our next question. It is from you, Mr. Rob. Uh, does van life make sense financially? <laughs> uh, so let's, what, how are you defining van life? Is this like a van down by the river? Or are you talking about like a van where you're, you know, you're out cruising around the U.S. and one of these kind of, what, what are the young millennials doing it, right? Where they just live out of a van. I was thinking more of the fashionable, like, put some effort into making your your van or your RV really nice, spend a lot of time traveling around uh, and living it. And the the van life part, part of the van life is traveling around and touring, Mm -hmm. not just trying to save money living in the van down by the the river. (laughs) Eating government cheese? well, I mean, there is a huge spectrum of van life, right? You have the people who are doing everything from, and there's YouTubers that do this, who like their their hobby is to go rent uh, like U-Haul vans that are just like shells and then go camping like in sub-zero winters, like in Montreal and stuff. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where you see these people that have dropped like $250,000 to trick out a sleeper Mercedes van. So... You know, I think the, the the answer to your question, unfortunately, is sometimes or maybe because some of these people spend more on these vans than they do on a house. Yeah, I actually sat down and tried to work out the math on it. And, uh, you know, there's a huge range of, of choices on how you do van life. And there's also a huge range of choices on, on people who have permanent addresses. Um, one of the things I was thinking about having spent five weeks live in uh out of a a small trailer of my family was you don't account for a lot of the things that add up as part of your daily cost so if you're really going to drive places you're going to spend 30 to 60 dollars a day and then um you think your your lodging is free but it's not you should consider the the monthly payment on your your van which is going to be you know 13 dollars a month if you have something that that you spent you know $40,000 $40,000 on, or it's going to be $35 a day if you spent something that you spend, if you have a van that you spent over $100,000 on. So there's a big range of outcomes there. Um, but then when you stop, unless you decide you're going to trespass a lot, you still have to pay rent one way or another. You have to rent that little piece of ground you're going to stop on. So if you're going to stop at like a, a park service park, you can get, a, get something as cheap as $15 a day. Right. But then if you're going to use an RV park, you're looking at 30, 40, 50, up to $70 per day for that, which is less expensive than a hotel, but it's not that great. And it adds up pretty quickly. 
the other problem that you have is that you're you're always uh, footloose, so you're always improvising on how you're going to feed yourself. Like you're eating in bars and restaurants a lot more than you normally would, and then you need activities every day, so you wind up spending, you know, kind of five to twenty-five dollars a day to get access to a national park or to go into a museum or an amusement park or something like that. So it adds up quite a bit. So I think it only makes sense financially for um, kind of the demographic of people that it is like a, a couple with no kids traveling in their van. And it only makes sense if they really are cheap about like, oh yeah, we don't have a lot of other worldly possessions that we're paying storage rent on somewhere else. And yeah. We're, really economical about the way we do our food we buy inexpensive food and we just cook it in our van and we don't really care about having nice meals in restaurants yeah um and you know we we sleep in friends driveway some of the time we trespass some of the time uh and we tend towards you know the the cheaper 15 dollars rent a little piece of land campsites than uh rv park campsites yeah Otherwise, you wind up spending so much on these kind of temporary, like one day at a time costs that it's actually more expensive than living in uh, a permanent home situation. Well, you know, I think at our age, middle age or old age, sitting in one of those vans and sleeping in it with, you know, low levels of of kind of air circulation that scares me is like, you know, I see the progression of how like, you know, how like little babies like pretty much smell so sweet and then little kids smell pretty good. And then as we get older, like you hang around with like a 75 year old and you're like, oh boy, this is a little, little malodorous. Like uh-huh. I do, I do worry about being cramped in a little tiny van like that, you know, in my forties and fifties and just being like, you know, it starts to smell like grandma's house, right? You remember that, that smell of mothballs moth, moth and <laughs> And uh, and mold. So, so you think not just the place that you li- not just yourself, but the place you live, all of it is going to wind up giving getting a certain smell of being used too much in close quarters. Yeah, I think your economics may be eaten up by you know, in addition to all these campsites and van repairs and depreciation and fuel. Like you're also going to be spending twenty bucks a day on Febreze to try to, to try to destink the thing. So, I mean, that's part of why I think the demographic that it works for is the the couple that can yeah. do it. I think for uh, single people, all of a sudden you're you're not a cool tourist living the van life. You're you're projecting some homelessness on yourself, mm-hmm. and you are going to have to spend resources like working your way back to being a person who could potentially be dateable. Yeah. <laughs> well, that uh, <laughs> that uh, really good free free climber, the free solo guy, Alex Alex Hunter. Yeah, like uh, he well, he was famous on his own, but like he had a girlfriend living in his van with him. I was like, oh, well, that's a, I guess become a famous climber and the ladies show up. So yeah, I think uh, I think he wound up marrying that girlfriend, and I think they live in Las Vegas in a house now. Oh, but he still has the van. You know why he started doing the van life? Uh, well, he was like he he wanted to live as close to uh, Yosemite as possible, right? Right, and there's a rule against long-term camping in Yosemite. Uh-huh. So what he needed to do was get the van and commute into Yosemite Park every day to climb and then leave every night. He'd, so he'd drive to just outside the park. He'd find a little spot yeah. and camp illegally on the, the side of the road. But that was better than getting hassled by the park rangers uh, every day for having been in the park too long. Sheesh. 
Pretty funny. Well, I, I definitely see the appeal. You know, as you get older, you start to just get more and more stuff, right? More house, more gear, more strollers, more whatever. And like the simplicity of just uh, of being in a van like that would just be pretty appealing. And, and my dad talks about his happiest time, you know, as a young person was just after, well, after he dropped out of college, uh, was living in a, like a 10 by 10 camper out on the side of a highway, like at, at one of one of our family properties. Like he, he said, uh-huh. every, everything was just right there. I had everything under control. It's yeah. Kinda, and, kinda, kinda and, and how many permanent homes does he own now? Yeah, too many. All right, on that note, uh, let's move on to question number three. I think it's my turn, right? Uh, no, we're going two in a row from me this time and then you'll wrap up the last one. Uh, okay, sounds good. Okay, so my my, my second question, our third for the podcast is, is Adam Newman successful? Adam uh, Newman, of course, the founder of WeWork. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I think you look at Adam Newman and you have to feel like he was very successful in certain regards and a total failure in others, right? I think he's definitely up there with the people who are the most lumpy achiever and achievers and anti-achievers all at once. So like he built like by and large, this mystique around a business that is not that good, uh, convinced everybody it was a great idea and then like failed horribly at like being a consistently good leader, for example, or like uh, actually kind of thinking through some of the actions. But the, you know, the, the, the two ends of the spectrum and the things that he was good and terrible at, like, like it's pretty impressive, right? Rarely do you find somebody with that many peaks and valleys, you know, in history. Yeah, I had to. I I kind of tried to reframe this question and say, all right, well, the the money is just a distraction in answering the question: Is he successful? Mm-hmm. Because uh, this is obviously personally very financially beneficial for him. The the founding of WeWork, its growth, and its incredibly high valuation, um, which. And, and, you know, when he kind of failed spectacular at the end, he was compensated very well to go away. So financially, he benefited for it, from it significantly in a, in a huge way. Um, but I think he also has probably created his own personal hell and, and that he's become this incredible public pariah that was uh, just a giant punching bag for journalists for a period of about six months last year. Um, and the the thing that he cared about the most for a long period of his life uh he's not a part of it anymore so i think that's got to be uh really frustrating to him uh i also think he's into a lot of a lot of the stuff he talks about community or mindfulness or uh how to approach life that that was part of his success in promoting we work i think he really believes a lot of that stuff so there's there's a chance that he's adapted to everything that's happened just fine and that he's he's content with the, the result and he can shrug off all the, the public criticism, which, you know, good for him if he can do that. Uh, there's also a big asterisk. He's a guy with a lot of ambition, a lot of charisma and a lot of money. Mm-hmm. So people like that tend to be successful. So it's kind of curious to see what he will try to do next. It, it feels like he is perfectly primed for a classic American redemption story. Yeah. And then there's another thing I wanted to think about with this in which is 
was he successful in building something and, and what's left? Because I think WeWork is kind of conclusively not a successful business right now. Uh, what did he really build there? Because it wasn't really a, it was a fairly dysfunctional company when he left it. But on the other hand, they built a lot of very beautiful and stylish and comfortable and functional office space that people enjoyed and, and loved working in. Yeah. So I think there's a lasting legacy there. And I think it might actually go to his partner when he started this, uh, the designer architect, a guy named Miguel McKelvey, who wound up being not nearly as famous, but maybe made a lot of the contributions on designing and building that space and also creating that, that culture around good design and doing things well. Yeah, I think if you look at it from one of the peaks, right, of the peaks and valleys for him is creating this vehicle in which to really push the idea of what office should be. Like, they definitely did that. Um, so, yeah, that kind of comes back to my idea. Like, yeah, he's it's not black and white, right? He's he's what's interesting about him is he's just such high peaks and such low valleys, right, in terms of in terms of where he's successful and not successful all at once. Yeah. Another thing about this, uh, this story is both these guys were talking about Adam Newman and uh, Miguel McKelvey, hugely tall. Oh. Adam Newman, uh, six foot five and Miguel uh, six foot eight. So going back to uh, <laughs> episode one of the podcast is helpful to be hugely tall. Uh, evidently, you know, case in point right here. I think that is uh, time to move on to our last question. It's your question. All right. Well, you are a professional real estate investor. It is what you do. Uh, and the question came from being on a thread on Twitter. And the question is, you know, for a young person or even for a mid-career person, how does one get started in real estate investing? Uh, I would say buy a duplex. Uh, and if you can't do that, buy a single family home or a condo for yourself. Get used to the process of uh, doing the contract, doing the loan application, getting approved, uh, learning the terminology and the jargon. And then particularly with buying a duplex, uh, it gives you an opportunity to, um, one, make some money off the, the rent for whoever you're going to rent to, uh, to build equity in your house kind of at a faster rate than you would if you just bought a small place for only yourself. Uh, and three, it gets you used to uh, the experience of, of being a landlord and having tenants. Um, and this is something that, that has to be learned the hard way is that most people's experience with landlords only comes from being a renter. Hmm. And so what they think is, is a good landlord is the, the landlord who takes care of everything right away, whether it's their responsibility to take care of it or not, and who uh, lets me be late on my rent without charging me a late fee, and you know, kind of does all these pro-tenant things. And a lot of good landlords are really good at treating their tenants well, but sometimes the landlords who give away too much are not necessarily profitable landlords, and you kind of learn firsthand the balance when you actually have to deal with your own tenants. Um, because if you're lucky, you get a good tenant and it's a good experience. And if you get a bad tenant and they, they push boundaries all the time, 
there's also a learning experience to be had there on, you know, kind of how to manage that and how to find your balance, how to set boundaries, but also meet your responsibilities. I think the, the last thing I'd say on this is the advice that somebody gave to me when I first made the jump from kind of working in that professional real estate, corporate real estate world to owning a lot of my own rental properties. He said, go out and buy this book. It's the Landlord and Tenant Guide to Colorado Evictions. In <laughs> Colorado. Yeah. Basically, what he's telling me is, like, if you're going to do this, you have to know what the rules are and what your responsibilities are and what your, your options are when things go really wrong, because they will every once in a while. Hmm. And don't, don't expect that to happen. And so I think in the, the 10 years that I've been uh, a landlord and renting people and hundreds of total tenant months, I've only ever evicted one tenant. Um, and it was kind of a hard process, but that advice was correct. You, you have to know where, where the end of the line is if you're going to be the, the landlord. And you should, you should start to understand that before you jump into it. So, I mean, I think a lot of what you just talked about spent a bunch of time on kind of the post-acquisition management of real estate and a bit on the transactional aspect. You know, I, I'm curious, how do you think somebody should learn how to underwrite a property or evaluate the right one to buy, right? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of people, at least here in Texas, for example, where property taxes are really high, that they may look and be like, oh, like, okay, the mortgage is this and my monthly payment will be this. And they forget to include things like property taxes, maintenance, all that kind of stuff. So, you know, how do you, how should people starting out possibly without a bunch of capital think about how to learn how to evaluate real estate? Well, I think one of the more important lessons is to do your own math as much as possible not just take the broker's numbers on rent that can be achieved or what your expenses will be to, but to really dig into the, okay, what are the actual expenses? Can I see the utility bills? Uh, what, what's the rent really going to be? Has it been rented before for what price or, you know, what are similar, similar homes or apartments renting for in this neighborhood? Mm -hmm. um, and so getting started on, it's kind of tough to learn all of that math. And there's certainly a lot of things you can study that will take more than four minutes to get into like cap rates and gross rent multipliers uh, and IRR calculations. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think if you're just wanting to get started in it, uh, if, if you don't own a home already, or if you own a home and you want to get started in it, like going to a duplex um, and really scrutinizing, like, what am I buying? What's the price per pound? How does it compare to comps in the area? And what was the price per pound on those buildings? Just really focusing on the, the value of the physical asset that you're, you're purchasing. Where is it and what is it? And then, and then if, you, if you make a good purchase in terms of the value of the asset that you bought, you can work back to creating value on, well, what's the right rent chart to charge to make this work for me? What, what's a fair rent for this space? Um, Again, and you have to think about what value am I offering to uh, my renters? Are they going to want to be here? Are they going to want to choose this place to move in? Are they going to want to stay a long time once they're here? Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that's just just touching on the topics. And I know you've left some out. Like, there's a bunch of stuff still 
you haven't even touched on yet. You know, <laughs> that's just stuff off the top of your head. Um, so is it, is it reading? I mean, is that, is that, or is it, I mean, I, I, in this same thread, like, I was like, well, like, why don't you go, if you're interested in real estate investing, like, go sit down and read the prospectuses on REITs, right, to really understand kind of how the strategy of these things works, or is it, is it just a common, or do you go find somebody to apprentice with, right, is it a combination of all those things? You know, I think those things are all good ideas, and I wouldn't discourage anybody from studying or trying to acquire a bunch of knowledge. Uh, I feel like I've talked to lots and lots of people who want to own something they could rent to get passive income. One, yeah. understand the income is often not passive. Um, but two, the biggest barrier is just taking that first step, which is why I say go go buy a duplex. Go get go take that first step. Um, you know, go go actually commit to purchasing a, a property because so many people intend to do this for years and it's just so threatening to them. If you think, oh, I'm not very handy. I don't know if I could do all the repairs. Guess what? That's not the most expensive part of earning real estate. You can, you can learn how to hire plumbers and electricians and carpenters when you need them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, can, you can learn how to paint and do things like that as you go. Um, it's just that, Uh, what's the expression? Perfect is the enemy of good. Right. Don't look to hit a home run on that first investment. Just make sure you're, you're hitting a a base rent or or a base hit. And that will give you a chance to get started. And that'll give you a chance to refinance or, or sell the property or tap into that equity that you made on that first investment. Mm -hmm. And then you take that first investment that, and the equity from it and the knowledge that you gained uh, doing it and you take that into your next investment. So in short, like your advice for people is, you know, read as much as you feel comfortable with network with other people, learn about it. But in the end, the real way to get started is, you know, amass enough capital that you would be okay losing it and just jump in and do one. Uh, Yeah. I think jump in and do one and, and do one that's appropriate scale for, you know, your finances and how much income you have uh, and do something that makes sense and is relatively straightforward. Mm-hmm. Uh, your, sh- your first real estate deal should not be a, a, a mixed use deal with a, you know, a vacant retail space that you would need to retenant or uh, it should, or shouldn't be an extensive remodel. If you get into remodeling, you'll learn a lot about construction and it's a lot more complicated than you think it is if you haven't been exposed to that world before. So that first deal should be something straightforward that is, you know, within your reach or, you know, feels somewhat uncomfortable to stretch for, but not overwhelming. Uh, and then the emphasis for, like, how should you get started is just, just go ahead and do it. You know, I think I, I put out, when I purchased my first home, I made sure to make that it was something that I could rent part of the home to friends for so they could help with that mortgage and offset some of that cost and build that equity. And I think I put off the, uh, the choice to make a second investment too long before I jumped into it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, different conversation, how to get started in it compared to like how to become a master of it or how to get started. If you're really going to try to build a, a portfolio of real estate assets or apartment buildings. Totally what do you it. think? 
You're you're acting mostly as an interviewer on this question. You've oh no, I think you're I think you're the expert. I also think we're out of time, so I think we should uh should, we should end on that note. Do you have any Do you have any corrections from previous episodes or any surprise topics like last time? No, I I just wanted to uh, make the the reference to episode one and and being tall. I just, I'm glad I worked that in already, and I, I think we can wrap it up for the day. Nice. Well, I think we killed it again. And kudos to you for getting your uh, your headset. You sound much better than uh, the previous time. So well done. Well, thank you. Cool. All right, everybody. Well, this has been Four for Friday, and we had a great time. Uh, this episode will go live tomorrow, the 19th of June, and we'll be back uh, Friday after that. Bye, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Goodbye. <laughs>